Open up your Bibles to Jude as we continue our study here uh, on mercy, peace, and love as, as Jude describes here. We're on love at this point. <clears throat> We've covered God's mercy, God's peace. I do want to read the text that we started with, which is Jude verses 2 through 4, and then we're going to dive right into uh, what it says here about God's love. Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 2, get my notes situated here. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this particular outline is only really going to cover what we see in verse 2, but it's, a, it's important for context that we understand the first verse that we spent so much time on, but also the next two that we'll continue to study going forward. Now, this third thing that he speaks of here in verse 2 is God's love. Not just any love, not just some generic love, not a limited love, not a conditional love, but God's love, which is very different than what man can muster. Probably way different than what man could even describe or write about, even in a fictional sense. It's near impossible for us to understand. Uh, unless we truly understand the depths of our own depravity, the length for which Christ Jesus had to go to purchase us, to wash us, to forgive us, we won't understand what God's love is actually like. From peace we see springs love. Christ's love to us, our love to him, and our brotherly love that we are to have from one to another. Now we can't have godly love. It can be based on godly principles, but we'll never reach that depth, that breadth, that capacity of love. But we are to continue to strive for it. Something else we should know from the text is that this faith is once delivered. This faith is once delivered, and, and it's this faith, this God, uh, this mercy, this peace, this love, it's once delivered. It's multiplied as God sees fit, but no one's going back to the cross again. It won't be repurchased. The faith here is not faith by which we lay hold of the salvation of God, but rather it is the truth as to the salvation and with all that accompanies it. This abiding faith has been given once, never to be added to, never needing to, never really needing to be added to, quite honestly. Its capacity knows no limits. Our understanding of God, surely love and reverence too, may grow as we mature in Christ. But all the blessings that come through faith in Him was given just once. The blessed writing of Jude here is a call to remembrance. And, and keep in mind in the context, in verse 3, he goes into speaking of an earnest contention that we should have for this faith. An understanding of mercy, hope, and love gives us the drive to contend for this faith. But he's calling to remembrance all that had been done for the believer from the very beginning. A remembrance of Christ Jesus who made it all possible. Uh, significant remembrance to those who have gone before. The, the trail of blood has already begun. It began with the cross. And the trail of blood that springs from it are disciples that between the cross and Jude have already been perished, had already been martyred. Those that pursued after Christ Jesus like Deacon Stephen. 
stoned in the streets. That same blood he calls for us to remember. As we continue through his letter, we'll see that he connects the Gentile saints to their redemption through Christ, through the mechanics the Lord chose to work through, but insists of the ever-crucial importance of us not only to remember that which was from the beginning, as he says, but our earnestly contending for it. Remember, great, but you can remember in your closet. You can remember in your home, in front of your television, never going out, never talking to anyone. That's not the remembrance that Jude is speaking of here. He says, remember in action. Remember in word. Remember indeed that what you do going forward, as Colossians 3, as Paul writes, is for the Lord. That your commitment to remembering is a drive, is an action. You know, we talk about remembering, sometimes we think of remembering something for a test. Remembering something so that we can pass the test. Or remembering a name. I have trouble with names sometimes. And trying to remember a name. But this remembrance is a remembrance of action. It's a, it's a remembrance that requires a muscle. A remembrance that is not inactive, but active. The gospel is to be exhorted by those who have received her sacred deposit. It's to be exhorted. Have you ever thought of the gospel as a deposit? Now, we know the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But as the gospel itself, it never departs. We might backslide. We might live lives where we don't want to call to remembrance that gospel, but it never departs. And it is a deposit in us. I hesitate to use the word investment, but there's some connective tissue there. And it's to begin the work of that muscle, to begin the work of remembering. Jude does not add new rules. He doesn't add new doctrines. But he calls to remembrance that which had been established in the foundations of Christ. As you read through Revelation, we should see that John is not adding to the teaching of Christ, but rather shows what the outcome is to be in regard to the conflict between truth and error carried on for so long. Think about it in that regard. Isaac, you're going to have to help me out here. The air, something, it's super hot up here. What he's talking about in Revelation of the things to come is a consequence, it's a conclusion to the days we're in. The conclusion to the days we've been in since the Lord went to the cross. We see a, a mingling of truth and error for centuries, for two millennia already. And where are we now? So-called Christians can't come into agreement on anything. We're at arms with one another more than we're at arms with the devil. The intermingling of truth and error while in the present seems harmless has created fractions. It's created denominational institutions. It's created, beloved, religion. Hear me now. Baptists are not denominations. And we aren't so much to be a religion either. Now, there are going to be some who take opposition to that, but understand what religion really is. Understand what a denomination really is. Who's my head? Who will you complain to when I cross a line from this pulpit one day? Is there an archdiocese that Steve will be asked to call to complain about what Brother Sitters said? Will I be demoted to a smaller, less significant church? 
That's not how we operate. And that's not how Christ's church operated. It operated then that Christ was the head. It should operate now that Christ is the head. There is no pope. There is no bishop. There are not a levels of a hierarchy that are in place of management. Christ manages his church. This is his bride, not the pope's bride, not the state's bride. If he knew well enough to call us to it, he ought to know well enough how to lead it, feed it, and care for it. And he indeed cared very much for his bride. His care for the bride is the description, men, that we're to follow and how we care for our wives. We ought to understand something about that. But what we see in Revelation, what men estimate to be coming, what we're very likely already in for a lot of intents and purposes, is a result of the conflict between truth and error. Uh, think of those who will be spared. There are those that think 120,000 anybody's that are saved and joined the church. That'd be hard to do. There won't be a church. Uh, there, there's a lot of conflict and still a lot of error that plays into our interpretation. This is why it's such a book of mystery to men even today because error and truth come with us into our interpretation of it. As though man stands and says what Jesus meant to tell John was or what John was supposed to record was this is either a divinely inspired book or it's not. No man needs to stand and interpret for Christ what Christ was saying. So be aware. Be weary and understand Jude's writings here. It's significant its placement in the Bible because it's right before the book probably most misunderstood aside from Daniel. And Jude talks about ungodly men. And what are ungodly men looking to do? Turn the grace of God into filthy lucre, lasciviousness, filthy Lust. That's what man would desire to do with the grace of God. Would we describe the grace of God as a filthy lust? We wouldn't. But our accusers already have. In, the understanding of, uh, in this understanding of God's love, let us see here our responsibility to it. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Paul writing, again, as we've been looking at in recent weeks, to the church at Ephesus. He says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we see gifts that are given, some gifts that are given, and we see their purpose, the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body. And now we see the length of time till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children. This implies we have been up to that point. Children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they, lay, they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, 
maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So those last few verses continue to point out and explain the purposes of the gifts that God had given, and we already know the length of time for which they are to be exercised. We're not done yet, in a sense. This is, this is what Paul's saying. We're not done yet. And Paul's saying this 2,000 years ago. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. So those of us in our 20s, our 30s, and 40s panting and patting our brow, oh, this is hard, like running uphill. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. Christ is coming. Praise the Lord. This is one of my favorite portions of text. Christ is coming. In verse 15, we see the phrase, speaking truth in love. We do not have the proper participle from the original Greek text. But if we were to express it literally, it would mean, or we would be saying, truthing in love. Truthing in love. Is there then an importance to worshiping in spirit and in truth? Is it not played out to the confusion that the book of Revelation is now for people? People are so confused, so many refer to it revelations. I mean, the confusion starts at the beginning and splits off and just continues to divert from the truth. We must hold to the Spirit. We must contend for this truth that was given to us in godly love. I'm very capable of speaking, but it is a much different thing to be truthing. This is what we're called to do. Truthing, speaking truth in love, truthing in love. This speaks more, of, more than just talking. This is every action that we take. It needs to be in love needs to be expression, be an expression rather, of God's love. If you're somewhere you shouldn't be, it's going to be really hard to express God's love there because he didn't want you to be there to begin with. If you're doing things you shouldn't do, it's going to be really hard to truth and love because God didn't want you there to begin with. But if you're someplace that maybe your flesh is most uncomfortable, but God had intended for you to be there, Scripture says he gives you the words to use. He leads your steps. You can, it is very possible to truth and love, to actively show the love of God in a place where you're most uncomfortable because you, what's really strange about it all that we seem to forget so quickly is that while your flesh is uncomfortable being there, the people around you are probably experiencing the same thing. But you have the secret of everlasting life. You have the part of the equation they must have to understand it all. That is salvation in Christ Jesus. You don't know what you're doing there, but we just went through Ephesians 4, so you do know what you're doing there. But the lost that are around you in this place very much need for you to say what you're there to do, what you're there to say, and that is truthing. They need your truth. They need your contention for the faith of God because at this moment in history, everyone is looking around and saying, why is this happening? There's not been an easier time for us to witness. Think of the peaceful days in the 80s and the 90s before Y2K and you know all those things. There weren't a whole lot of days where we were all looking around thinking, boy, this is weird. Enron employees just going to work like another day. World Trade Center people going in, going out, going up, going down, like another day. We don't do that anymore. Because now we look around and say, where's the next balloon coming from? What garage will have the next laptop? 
What will China do? What will Russia? What will Biden do? And it's way more than just these figureheads. We're battling, as we just got done talking about in our main service outlines, we are battling that which we cannot see. An ancient darkness that has been here since Genesis 3. Pulling on the flesh. And he himself, this great deceiver, standing before God, not pleading our case, but tearing apart every decision we've ever made, every look, every glance, every thought, and saying he is exceedingly wicked. He's seeking to sift us like wheat, to destroy our testimony so that when we are where God would have us to be, we are unable to truth because we're so ashamed. How you live, how you think, how you practice, these are all methods for speaking truth, for truthing. Some will say, I'm not ready for that. I'm incapable of doing that. You're still in a season of repentance. Repent. And study to prove thyself faithful. Study to equip yourself. Pray that you be equipped. Pray that you be prepared. I'm not in the shape I want to be. So two weeks ago, I started walking and working out again. I'm still not in the shape I want to be. I'm going to have to keep working at it. I'm going to have to keep pressing on. This is no different than preparing our body to be in full submission for the race. This is no different than what we just finished reading uh, of Brother Ames in the bulletin last week. Are we looking to run the race to win? Because we weren't called to stand on the sidelines and watch others run this race. In 2023, if you're here and born again, that's your mission field. That out there today, that hot mess that we all complain to one another about, those are the ones you are called to love. You are called to truth. You are called to go and feed. All that the Lord Jesus says about feeding and maybe being rejected and what to do in those cases, all of that is instruction for you in 2023 and how you will handle the mission field. Imagine getting a mission update letter from somebody, and we've got six or seven of them back there, that says, well, nothing happened this month. I stayed in and played PlayStation. Nothing happened this month. I found this great book and couldn't put it down. So I stayed in a room without windows and I just read for a month. Thanks for your support. We'd, we'd be aggravated. At least make something up. Tell us you did something. But there are a lot of Christians in 2023 who like those rooms without windows. We are called to portray God's love in all that we say and do. That's a great strain on the flesh. The flesh hates it. I, I've been walking about 30 minutes a day for two weeks, and, and in this past week, and I'm not trying to brag because I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but in the past week I've started doubling up, walking in the morning, walking in the afternoon, adding some weightlifting, and um, Eddie's my inspiration. If I can get to where Eddie's, Eddie is, I'd be happy. Um, and it might take me 40 years to get there, brother, but I'm going to keep pressing on. But it's a strain on the flesh. I stand before you today, if, if I twist the wrong way or take too deep a breath, uh, the middle of my spine is just going to seize up and I'm going to drop. I'm in a lot of pain. My body doesn't want to go through this journey with me. It hates it. Uh, when Beck came to the, the baby shower last night, and she'll tell you this is true, I said, uh, we need some dish soap and get some Oreos. 
Get some double-stuffed Oreos, please. She came home without their soap and without Oreos of any stuffing whatsoever. Oatmeal cream pie she brought home. I hate oatmeal cream pie so bad. The flesh hates discipline. The flesh hates discipline. Why? The flesh preferred that fruit. Adam and Eve thought, this looks good to eat. The flesh prefers rebellion. Oh, preacher, you're going too far. Okay, Let, let's slow down then. The, the girth that I'm carrying right now is killing the flesh, is it not? It's straining the heart. It's straining my spine. It strains my lungs. So the flesh loves that which is killing it. It desires that which is going to keep it content in doing nothing, but also watch itself die. The flesh doesn't like everlasting life. It doesn't crave it. The flesh doesn't get up in the morning and drag me out running. I have to do that. I have to mentally call my form into submission and say, we are going. We are going. We're going to press. We're going to push. We are going to strive after this thing. Beloved, you're going to have to get there spiritually too. You're not going to witness to the next person at the gas pump if you've never exercised a muscle in this book. You are not going to pray for the lost as you should if you've never truly prayed before at all. If you're fiddling in this room while the men are praying, you won't be equipped to pray either. Not because we're strengthening you, but because you're undisciplined. Uh, how many pro athletes don't make it because they lack discipline? There was a, a young man who got paid way too much to catch a football that threw a fit in Tampa Bay a few years back, took his jersey off, and just walked off the field. Would you call that discipline? I call him unemployed. He has no place to work anymore. He's undisciplined. Uh, some in this room own their own business. Would they put up with an employee that comes and goes as they please, that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't? No, they're undisciplined. What does Scripture say? Study to show thyself proven. Study to show thyself equipped. Study to show thyself ready. What does Christ say? Die unto yourself, bear your cross, and follow after me, or you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Boy, that's just not the motivational speech you want to hear. That's our Savior. Laying it out plain. You must be born again. You must live differently. This is why we've been given his mercy, because we will fail. We will fail at times. This is why we've been given his peace, because love, charity, suffereth long and is kind. This is why we've been given his love, because it is immutable. Ours can be weak. Ours, most times, is conditional. You've got to prove yourself to me to get my love. You've got to prove yourself to me to be forgiven. I've sat down with preachers who have said, I can't forgive until they ask for it. I can't judge them. I've been in that same spot. But I have to ask the question, and I have, is that what Christ did? It's the problem I have with that phrase, repent and believe. It's true. But it's sort of inseparable. And it's not even really the sequence in which it works, because you won't repent unless you believe, and you can't believe and not repent. 
It's sort of two different ways of describing the same exact work of God, of the Holy Spirit, on us at regeneration. I think we should stick to the scriptures and forgive because Christ said to forgive. Paul wrote, forgive as he forgave. And I don't know how to muster up the strength that he mustered up to forgive us, though we were his enemy, though we were his persecutors. So I'm just going to forgive. I'm going to do everything I can to just forgive. I'm going to be wronged. This world hates Christ. This world hates light. If I'm doing my job right at all, not my job as a pastor, my job as a Christian, if I'm doing it right at all, this world despises me. I'm going to need legal protection. The last thing we see there in verse 2 is unto you multiplied. Mercy unto you, peace unto you, love unto you. Let it be multiplied unto you is the phrase Jude is using there in verse 2. So let us understand of, these, of the three gifts of God listed above, they are abundant. I would wager we've not even begun to tap the full resources of mercy, peace, and love that have been given unto us. Abundant is the provision for each saint who has to meet the soul's enemy in this world of iniquity and corruption. Ironside wrote, If mercy, peace, and love are ever lacking, it bespeaks not a stinted supply of grace, but a failure to enter into what is freely bestowed upon all who receive with thanksgiving what our God so delights to give. Let me say that again. It is not a stinted supply of grace, but a failure to enter into what is freely bestowed. He never casts a trusting, honest soul upon its own resources, but has pledged himself to meet every need according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Never will that time of need be over until we reach that scene where strife and warfare are past forever. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Walking in that door with your chest puffed up is not coming under the throne of grace boldly. Going out that door, entering into the furnace, and saying, my God will deliver me, if it be his will, he is able, that is entering boldly. That is a bold stand. Coming in here is supposed to recharge us. It's supposed to feed us. We are supposed to be weary soldiers when we come in here on Sundays. And we should be crawling in here on Wednesdays, desirous of a midweek feeding, because we're starving. But how many have come in here tired, worn out, not just because you stayed up too late yesterday, but tired and worn out because you've given everything Christ asked you to give, and he asked for more. And you need his grace, his mercy, his peace, his love. You need to be multiplied. You need to be recharged. Those who have received the truth must contend for it, as the apostles did, by suffering with patience and courage for it, not by making others suffer if they will not embrace every notion that we call faith or that we say is important. I have some scriptural examples for you. We're going to go through them pretty rapid for time's sake. Galatians 4.18 says, But it is good to be zealously affected, always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13 says, Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Well, you want to get worn out, just do that one thing. Just do that one thing this week. There's your challenge. See if you're not absolutely worn out abhorring that which is evil 
and cleaving to that which is good. Watch a lot of TV, turn it off every time a homosexual commercial comes up. Turn it off every time they take the Lord's name in vain. You won't be watching much TV this week. Turn it off and mark it down. I'm not watching this show anymore. It's offensive to my God. It won't be offensive to your flesh. Be warned. That's going to be the challenge. It will not offend the flesh. It won't. Your flesh loves it. But if it's found offensive to God this week, turn it off. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. All that we read there is crucially important, but it starts with abhorring that which is evil and cleaving to that which is good. If you're not doing that, you can't do the remainder of that. It's surface. It's superficial. It doesn't go any deeper than that. 1 Corinthians 14:12 Even so ye for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church What's edifying mean The encouragement the building up of the strengthening of This might be the first time you've ever heard it But we the living stones of this church we require to be edified and built up not built up in a self-esteem sort of way, but encouraged and strengthened. We, we read through the prayer requests, and we hear a trial that Isaac's going through or Steve's going through. We call one another up and say, I'm praying for you. That's a strengthening. That's an edifying. But you won't do that if you're not abhorring evil. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, which is similar to what Jude says. Though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up. And how does he stir them up? By putting them in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this uh, put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after that my, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Along with his mercy comes forgiveness for when we disappoint. Uh, there's a term out there, it's antinomianism. It refers to those that believe that salvation comes by faith and faith by grace, but that as a result we are no longer subject to the law to the Ten Commandments, but the other 500 laws that they had as well, that we no longer answer to the law of God. This is not true. The law is our schoolmaster. The law is what revealed unto us our depravity, as we saw with the adulterous woman last Sunday afternoon. It's the law that most times brought us to the feet of Christ Jesus, to his teachings for the first time. Do not abandon the law. To be subject to the law is to walk according to the flesh, uh, or to, to ignore the laws, to walk according to the flesh rather than the spirit. Eventually, living an antinomian life will lead us to believe that everything we do must be right because we are saved. Everything we do because we no longer answer to the law must be a blessing to others. That's not somebody you want to have over for a meal. That's not somebody you want to go bowling with. It is blasphemy to the spirit that is within us. That deposit that we referenced earlier. Consider John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The Lord taught us in word and deed how to walk in this life and of whose business we should be about. Who is Jesus, girlfriend? Who is Jesus' schoolyard buddy? What was his favorite sport? Favorite team? What did he like to do for fun? What was his favorite food? Well, surely those who know Jesus ought to know these answers. Superficially, we would say that about one another. I know Ernie like the back of my hand. I know he likes this, that, and then that, and that. What makes him tick? That's all we know about Jesus. This is the will of the Father. His will be done. I go off to pray. Not play. Pray. We don't know any of those things about Jesus because none of those things matter. That's not what he came here for. To disregard the law is to put a fictional barrier between the saved and the lost. It literally compels us to an elevated platform above them. Rather than to show them that God's grace and mercy have been provided for us, in that sense we would be justified through the Son uh, to the Father. It shows that this justification and righteous living is no longer important. Why would we uh, have a, a, a restricted lifestyle? Why would we have an importance of holy living if we don't answer to the law? This is the derivative meaning to a phrase, I try to avoid once saved, always saved. Not because I don't believe it, but because so many hide behind it. Once saved, always saved. I can live how I want to. I can do and say all that I desire. And they believe themselves to be saved. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Breaking God's law does not lose your salvation if you are indeed saved, but to disavow our responsibility to the law, we would never have need of repentance. Think about it. What would you ever repent for? You'd never come clean if there was never a law you answered to, and never a law that you broke. Matthew uh, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we've seen this lately. Probably going to spend a little bit more time on it again here soon. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We just read this in our afternoon study not long ago. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The law is the schoolmaster. The law, since creation, since, it, since its inception, has been pointing to Christ. You're going to learn of Jesus. You're going to learn of the law. You won't be able to help yourself. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light this portrays a life of effort in which to obtain righteousness we can only go through he that is righteous he that truly has righteousness we ought to contend earnestly for the faith in opposition to those who would corrupt or deprave it and that's what Jude's leading into the ungodly seeking to turn God's grace unto lasciviousness these depraved who creep in unawares, who glide in like serpents. That's how Jude's describing it here. That's an interesting way to do, to do that, is it not? They glide in like serpents. Worshiping in truth and spirit means that we are to contend and confess the truth with our lips and our actions. Is there any other way to worship than by putting the Father's will before our own? There isn't. We studied that quite a bit last year. There isn't. You're not truly worshiping someone if it's on your conditions. You can't worship God and say, but I'm going to do it my way. 
If, if the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth, and, and he did, and established his church, and he established for them a great purpose, and he did that too, then it should be fulfilled by those who call themselves followers or disciples. Our Lord used the often quoted verse that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He uses this in John 4 when speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. I believe in this text we see all of our points from this lesson in Jude very clearly. In John 4, 4, we see God's mercy as he did not just happen upon this woman at the well. It says in John 4, 4, he must needs go through Samaria. He was seeking her out. He knew where she was. It was his foreknowledge and providential intent to meet this woman at the well. We see his mercy. She had to get water in the heat of the day, if you recall. He didn't have to. He didn't have to be there. Uh, his Jewish brethren had no desire to be there. They didn't like the Samaritans. In verse 9 of John 4, we see a bit of tension that lied between the Jews and Samaritans. In verse 10, Jesus shows us her need for the living water that only he can provide. And she shows us in verses 11 through 12 that she knows she cannot draw said water on her own. A turmoil is seen as her own flesh desperately needed that which she could not provide for her own. Well, that's a wicked thing to reveal unto her. No, that was the law revealing unto her that she could not deliver herself. That she needed a savior. She needed salvation. In verse 13 through 14 of John 4, Jesus expresses for her God's peace and that she would never have this turmoil again if she were able to partake of this living water. And in verse 15, we see her acknowledgement of her need for him. In verses 16 through 26 of that same chapter, and this is where we'll close. Just kidding. Verses 16 through 26, Jesus exposed her sin as he did in us, leading to our acknowledgement of our own need of salvation. He leads her to repentance. It is by God's love that he does this, uh, does not merely leave us thirsting after spirits once, spirit once given, uh, once given his truth. He reveals all together. And we see a great multiplication uh, in the, the ending of that chapter. I'm going to read that for you, and then I promise I'm going to close. John chapter 4, verses 28 through 30 says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Remember, she's fighting against the flesh. She has to get water from the well in the heat of the day. She's one unclean in her community. She can't go up there with the other ladies. She's had multiple husbands. She's offensive just coming through the marketplace. She wouldn't have been able to purchase like other people. All of this doubt and shame and, and all of these things weighing against her flesh, and yet she goes on to these men and says, Come and see. I have met the Messiah. Come and see. Verse 39 through 42, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that, I ever, all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Our desire is to not witness to others that they would believe in Christ Jesus because we said something. Our desire in witnessing should be that they go and seek after Christ because of what they heard.
Our testimony is what we heard, what we saw, what we experienced, and how it made us feel. And that story should point others to say, I gotta, I'm kind of curious about this thing. I want to know more about this Messiah, this Christ Jesus. This is what the law points to. The law reveals most desperately our hopeless estate that we could never fulfill the law. We could never keep such a thing. So when one comes along and says, I know the one who can. I know the one who can redeem you, who can wash you white as snow, that can make it possible. We should seek and desire to, to find this one. I pray for you here today if you're lost, that you seek and desire to find this one. Maybe you've heard about Jesus your whole life. Maybe you're sick of it. Maybe you're sick of hearing about Jesus. Maybe you're sick of hearing other people tell their story of salvation. Uh, Sam Rue was here a couple months ago. Talked about how he lost his daughter before he opened up his eyes and saw the Lord Jesus, saw the work that the Lord had for him. He wasn't living a delightful life. It was a despicable life based on his own testimony. Did that shake you? Did that make you a little curious about Jesus who could take such a man and use him? There are none in here who are redeemable by man's terms. There are none in here who deserve it. There are none in here who could hope to keep it. And I'm not looking to pick a fight with you. It's the desperate truth. I am wicked ever continually. Every day repenting of thoughts, of this imagination that I have, that I have fed, quite literally fed, because at times I have not abhorred wickedness. I pray you accept this challenge. Take a week. If for nothing else, just to see how many things are offensive unto God. At the end of the week, you don't have to tell anybody what you do with it. But spend just a week to see how many things you've allowed into your soul that God abhors. I pray that he will receive all the honor and glory.